Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles and turn to Ruth, if you would, please. We're getting close to finishing uh, this great little book. Ruth chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the first 12 verses of this chapter. One of the topics I want to talk today is entitled Sealing the Deal. How many of you enjoy going to the automobile uh, shop or what, you know, a car dealer and just dealing with uh, and wheeling and dealing for a new car? Anyone here? Or, or, you know, buying a house or maybe it's just buying a cow, whatever it may be. There's something about sealing the deal. Now, I don't know how many of you, is anybody here, by the way, has worked as a salesman or saleswoman ever? Okay. Sale, yeah. Even if it's at a store or something like that and, you're, and, it's, and it's on commission maybe or if it's just trying to convince someone to buy what you're selling. Not uh, most of us maybe not have done that, but we've been at least on the other side of the negotiation table. Now, closing the sale can be difficult. It can be frustrating. It can be nerve-wracking for those on both sides, even in the best of conditions. Lucid Chart, a technology blog, warns that contrary to popular belief, when it comes to closing sales, to making that sale, to get that customer to buy what it is you're selling, it isn't about numbers. It's about people. The minute you take your focus off your customer and make it more about your numbers, the sales number, the cost of the item, he writes, your client will feel the shift. And you could probably say, yeah, I can understand. I can tell when I'm dealing with someone and all they're thinking about is commission. They're not really thinking about me. You, you, you kind of get this as the idea is you go to a, a car dealership and they say, well, how much can you afford monthly? You can tell then that someone is, is thinking more of, of the money and the sale. They're not really thinking about, well, I might be able to afford this, but is still that the best thing? And many of us, we fall for that, right? We, we fall, well, can we make that monthly payment? As you see here, as we jump up, Lucy, uh, Lucid Charts recommends seven t- tips for those that are in the selling business. Number one, identify the decision makers. Hence why you'll see a lot of salesmen, they, if, if it's a household good or something like that, they're looking straight at the, 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 the spouse, right? Or if you're looking at a car, you might be looking at uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the gentleman. Not always, but generally. Do your homework. Pitch the solution you're providing. I think that's important. Pitch the solution you're providing, not your product. So you're trying to sell them something of more value than just the product. Ask for the sale. You have to eventually ask for the sale. Anticipate and mitigate any objections. Well, like, you know, so on and so forth. Create a sense of urgency, which, I, by the way, that's the thing that usually I struggle with salesmen. You got to do this now. And then don't try so hard. We all know people who sometimes we try too hard and it just comes off the wrong way. Today, we're going to look at that and we're going to see and witness Boaz, the hero of our story, is employing most of these tips that you and I just read, but he's doing it several thousand years before uh, Lucid Chart ever put this down. In last week's passage, we read of Act 3 of this redemption love story with Naomi scheming, Ruth is proposing, and Boaz is getting cold feet. 
In our passage last week, you'll recall that Ruth's proposal requested that Boaz, would you spread your wings over your servant? That was her proposal. That was kind of her getting down on the knee. Not will you marry me, but would you spread your wings over your servant? What is interesting is that back in chapter 2, when, when Boaz first meets Ruth, you might remember there in the field, Boaz had blessed her by saying, when he heard, I've heard your story, I know what you have done. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you've done by following Naomi, by supporting your mother-in-law when you didn't have to. And may a full reward be given you by the Lord. So he blessed her, saying, you are a worthy woman. May God bless you for your goodness and your kindness. And then he said, may the Lord be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I don't know if you caught that last week. I meant to emphasize that. and I, I passed through and I didn't do it last week. But I'm doing it today because when you look at that, Ruth most likely remembered that when he said, may God put his wings over you. And that struck her mind when she proposed. What Boaz didn't know, when he gave her that blessing, he was actually the answer to his own prayer. He was going to be the redeemer of Ruth. And so that's so interesting. By the way, I I encourage you, that's one of the things that we need to realize is many times God is going to use us to encourage, to comfort, and to lead others to themselves. Many times we're asking for miracles. Well, you may very well be that miracle that God is going to work through you. And so you need to be open to that as we see. Now, that's, that's a little bit extra. I'm not going to charge you for that. But as we continue in this little book, we are now going to move to Act 4, scene number 4, where we find Boaz is now at the city gates, and he's looking for that closer relative, the one who actually is in a better position to redeem Ruth. Remember last week he said, listen, I accept your marriage proposal. I will do what you requested, but there's someone that's actually closer in relations to you, and so we need to give him the opportunity to do so First, we're looking for that one who can redeem Naomi and Ruth and presents the author of the kinsman redeemer. So with that, Ruth chapter four, I think the first two verses are here. Then the rest are going to be in scripture. But as we read, the narrator says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate. This is the next morning. And he sat down there at the gate and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And so he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they also sat down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this book, the story of redemption. Give us wisdom as we come to understand it, as we come to know it. Lord, that you would be glorified in the teaching of this and in our reception of it. And may we make the distinction or the line that's drawn here between Boaz and Jesus Christ. The redemption of Noah, or excuse me, Naomi and Ruth and the redemption of your children even today. Thank you for this time. May we use it wisely. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Though Boaz probably never attended a conference or a seminar in the art of sealing the deal, we find him ready to fulfill his promise to Ruth and Naomi. This scene can be broken up in four parts. First, we see Boaz preparing his sales pitch. Boaz, true to his word, follows through and goes to the city gates, and he waits for that close relative to walk by. 
Tony Moretta, a pastor, points out that the legal transactions and judicial proceedings and official businesses were all conducted at the city gates. Like you and I, we would go to probably a courthouse or a city function of something to do something official or to a bank with a notary. They would just go to the city gates and they would do their business there. Once he found the closer relative, he requests that he steps aside. And though he only needs three witnesses, according to the Mosaic law, to witness and to confirm their deal, he actually gathers 10 of them to hear his pitch and it serves as witnesses of this transaction. Secondly, as we go on, the narrative gives just a simple transcript of the proceedings starting in verse 3. Follow along with me. Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and then I come after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. I will buy it. Now, Boaz begins by relaying the reason for the meeting and the opportunity to purchase their relative's property, Elimelech. Remember, he's dead, his two sons. It is now to his wife, Naomi, his widow. John MacArthur notes that Naomi here is in selling. She's interested in selling. As a widow, she would need the money for living expenses. Boaz and the unnamed relative were most likely either brothers or cousin, with the one being an older brother or a cousin that is closer than Boaz. Boaz informs his relatives that they are both qualified to act as a redeemer. And that's important, that phrase. He's qualified to act as a redeemer or buyers. And, they all, and he offers him the first dib, so to speak, on purchasing the property. Do you want this? And as you're going to see, he's giving him all the positive aspects of the sale, right? Of Here's the deal. Would you want to do it? The ESV uh, study Bible remarks, you'll see it here in the monitor, that when we see the word redemption or redeem, it's referring here to the terms of buying and selling. This land or the legal right to it may have been sold by uh, uh, Elimelech during the famine or right before leaving for Moab. Or Naomi may be still in full possession of the land or of its use, and now she's selling out of necessity. In either case, a kinsman is given the option of redeeming the land and giving it back or keeping it within the family. Now, the unnamed relative jumps at this opportunity. He sees this opportunity as a good deal. But then Boaz adds a hitch to the deal in verse 5. He painted a beautiful picture of what this man would buy, but he all of a sudden he says, but wait a second, there's a catch. Look at verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day that you buy that field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. And notice that he gives her name, but he also says where she's from, a pagan foreign woman. The widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So now is he not identifying, hey, you're also going to have to marry this foreign woman, but you're also going to have to perpetuate his dead. And that's going to make sense here in a minute. Then the Redeemer in verse 6 says, well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. 
You take the right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Though he's in the position to do it, though he has the power to do it, he is not going to take the privilege of doing it. This deal sounded so good until all of a sudden he saw the full price tag, right? You know, I've been there. I went one time, went to help my mom buy a car. She was leasing a car and, and we're going through it and everything sounded good with the deal at the front desk, but then they send you to the finance guy. That's the guy, you're, you're going to be enemies with him forever. You sit down on that small little desk, and then he keeps you, when he says it's going to be quick, you spend the next two hours doing all sorts of things until the end, all of a sudden, that price you negotiated for winds up being like this, right? So this is kind of what's happening here. But to me, as I read this, this demonstrates the way that, that Boaz gives this sale. He doesn't mark it out as, by the way, you need to marry Ruth, but with it, you also get to buy some land. He kind of gives a positive and then a negative. He almost kind of brings him in, but then he kind of, not, not necessarily a bait, bait and switch, but very, very, very similar. But to me, this demonstrates to me the desire of Boaz to be that redeemer. Boaz wanted to be the one to redeem Naomi and Ruth. Something happened between chapter 3 and chapter 4, those two to three months where Ruth was working in his field. Something happened, I believe. The narrator doesn't give it. But Boaz started to look favorably on Ruth. This doesn't seem like it's more something that's just an obligation because Boaz could have just let this man have it and just go on. But it seems to me Boaz, he desired Ruth. He wanted to be the one to help them. At first, he sweetens the deal, and then he kind of poisons it by relating the other requirements. The man did not want to split his inheritance with his children and any that would come from his union with Ruth. Let me give you, just bring this up. You see, the thing for us to understand is that if when they bought this land from Naomi, this property, the house, the lands, all that came with it, he would also have to take care of Naomi for the rest of her life. But he also was then going to have to marry Ruth. Now, that may or may not be a good thing. We don't know what Ruth was like. We know by spirit she was a wonderful, loving woman. However, what would happen is that the child that he, he would have to ha give her a child they would have to come together and have a child. And the first son that, would, that they would have would actually inherit all that land. So if you were the kinsman redeemer, you didn't get to give it to your family when you passed away. You had to give it to someone else's family. To him, he says, I'm buying something and I may have a short term use of it, but I don't get to keep it long term. So for this man, he counted the cost and says, uh, no deal. No deal. There's no way I'm doing this. I'm not going to hurt my inheritance or my children. Now, thirdly, as we go to verse 7, we read Boaz accepts the full responsibility. Though this man did not, Boaz has counted the costs, and he's more than willing to pay it. Now, this was the custom in verse 7. In former times in Israel, concerning redeeming and exchanging. So the narrator here has given us an idea of what used to happen in the olden days. To confirm a transaction, you and I might shake our hands, right? But this one, they would draw, draw off their, drew off their sandal and they would give it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
that I will do this. So in verse 8, when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. So you might just have a collection of sandals. Instead of having that dollar bill in a, in, a, in a frame, you just put a sandal, I suppose, on there. But look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this is day, to that this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Limelech and all that belong to Chilion and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. So now we find out which brother she was married to, which son. I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So you see the purpose of why he's doing it. That the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of this native place. You are witnesses to this. The narrator points out to his original readers that the day of the judges, the custom of seal and deal included the taking off of one sandal. And Boaz redeems or buys all that belong to Elimelech and his sons, his deceased sons. In addition, he gets Ruth and the responsibility for Naomi. The firstborn son of Boaz and Ruth would be considered the son of Malon, while all others afterwards then would be legally then excuse me, the offspring of Boaz. So the first son would get everything from Elimelech. The, 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 any, any sons and daughters afterwards would then be Boaz and Ruth and would receive from Boaz's part. So Boaz knows that he is buying something. He is purchasing something that he is not going to be able to give to his children other than just the first son. So it is something that he will not be able to continue to keep within his own name. Now, fourth, we read then the fourth part of this scenario as we see the reaction of the witnesses to the sealing of the deal. In verse 11, or verse, uh, yeah, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that, your Lord, that the Lord will give you by this young woman. By this time, a crowd, the narrator writes, has gathered to watch the bargaining between these two men, along with the ten elders. Not only did they approve, but they also proclaim a threefold witness or threefold prayer of blessing to this deal. To Ruth, they blessed her that she would be like Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob back in Genesis. Now, Rachel is buried near Bethlehem, so she was kind of like a patron saint type of thing. And Leah was the mother of their tribe. Judah was, they were from the tribe of Judah. So the, Leah was their uh, mother their great-great-great-grandmother, 900 years earlier. And they were special ancestors. Scripture points out that Yahweh opened up both of their wombs just as God, as we're going to see next week, opens up the womb of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was not able to have any children with Malon. Then they give a blessing to Boaz. They prayed that he would continue to be a worthy man and that he would be recognized as such by not only those in the town, but that Yahweh would increase his reputation. And then to the family at large, the gathering of these two people, 
They pronounced a prayer of blessing that Yahweh would strengthen their family and make it great as God did towards Tamar. Now, Tamar is a sad story that we've, we've hinted at uh, before. She was the, um, uh, the daughter-in-law of Judah who had to pretend that she was a prostitute to also do a Levite marriage or Levite a child uh, through that. And we won't go too much into that. I think it's in Genesis 38, 38 if you'd like to read that. But Tamar, for many people, would say she is a woman of ill repute. However, Scripture speaks highly of her, of her faith. And so for them, Perez is the one who would then eventually become the family member, the, t- the head of this family of those in Bethlehem. Is the firstborn of the twins by Tamar, and he's the main ancestor of this group. So they want them to be established. They are, they are seeing this. Uh, whether they knew both, both parties, I'm sure they knew Boaz. They all had heard the story of Naomi and Ruth, as we saw earlier in chapter 2. And so these people are saying, this is wonderful. This sad tale of calamity and tragedy is coming to a blessed, wonderful ending. Now, as you and I read this, it is a great love story. But this love story of redemption serves to point to the work of Yahweh in redeeming his children from the curse of sin and death. So in this story, it's more than just a hallmark story of some type of love, you know, found in the field, barley fields of Bethlehem. It's to point to a greater reality of God who loves and redeems his children, his people. This little short love story was a source of comfort and encouragement, even in the calamity and tragedy that God would not forsake his people. And some might say, well, why is Ruth in the Old Testament? Why is in our book today? Well, for, for generations, Ruth was a source of encouragement to those of Israel that were dispersed out of Israel. That God would not forsake them. God would not uh, uh, disperse them and leave them alone. But that God would come and redeem them. God will never forsake his covenant. 500 years after Boaz redeemed Ruth, the Holy Spirit declares to the prophet Isaiah, you shall know, as he speaks to Israel, you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One, of Jacob. This story reminds them as well as us that God is the great redeemer. The Lord is the redeemer of Israel. But you and I have even greater news is that he also decreed that he would include people from all tribes, nations, and ethnicities in his redemption plan. In other words, you and I are included in this plan, not just Israelites, not just those from the tribe of Judah, not just from the tribe of Melemech, but you and I are included in this wonderful love story. This has been part of his plan all along. Before he said in the beginning, let there be, God had decreed that we would be part of that family, that he would redeem us. What you and I learn from Ruth is that there's only one redeemer. And this is the point, I believe, of chapter 4, 1 through 12. There is only one redeemer. Now, once again, both of the men in, in here, the close, the close relative and, and Boaz, were qualified to redeem, doing to be close relatives, and, but only one 
was willing to count the cost and the sacrifice for the benefit of the other. Both were qualified, but only one was willing. This is important. Boaz demonstrates his love and selflessness in redeeming the family of Elimelech, knowing that all that he bought would eventually go to another. Boaz was uniquely qualified to be the redeemer of Naomi and Ruth as he had the position. He was a relative. He had the power. He had the finances to be able to do it. And he had the privilege. He was chosen by God to be that redeemer. As we have mentioned throughout this series, Boaz, though, points to a greater redeemer, that of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus is uniquely qualified to serve as our kinsman redeemer. As our scripture reading earlier in Revelation, Landon read, it declared that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Remember, they opened, they looked and said there was no one to open the scroll. But then the angel said, no, but there is one. He is the lamb. Stephanie Van Eyck, uh, Reek writes this. She says, Boaz foreshadows Jesus Christ, the ultimate kinsman redeemer who will redeem a bride for himself, the church. You see, you and I are called the bride of Christ, those who repent of their sin and turn and put their faith in Christ. We are the bride of Christ. She goes on the right, on the right you may see this here on the monitor that the story of Ruth betrays God's blessing on the righteous. This outcome was only accomplished, though, through Boaz's righteous response. Through his action, Boaz communicates Christ, his person, his character, illustrates the incredible hased, and we talked about his love, his kindness, all these things, his mercy that Christ possesses for his people as well as the great measures he is willing to take to redeem his bride. See, this is our Redeemer, the one who is qualified to do so, uniquely qualified. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to, sec- or it's not, I was about to say Second Philippians. There's only one, so just Philippians. It's in the New Testament near the back of the book. If you can find Revelation, then just go several back. You'll find it, Philippians, or if you find Acts, then just a few more. I'd like for you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to spend a few minutes recounting how Christ is qualified to redeem and reconcile us back to the Father. If you found that, bring your, your attention back up to the monitors, if you would. Clarence Haynes Jr. He writes, there were four requirements of a kinsman redeemer. Number one, you had to be kin. You had to be a relative, a brother, a brother a cousin, so on and so forth. Number two, you had to be willing. As we saw, this other man was not. He was closer. He had the ability to do so, but he chose not to. Number three, you had to be able to redeem. You had to have the finances. You had to have the resources to do so. You couldn't just say, well, hey, I'll marry Ruth and enjoy her, but I can't really buy the land. Uh, Number four, you had to pay the price in full. There was no family and friend discount on the land and all that. You paid full price. Hence, that man says, I'll pay the price for the land, but man, I don't want the price of another wife and someone that's going to inherit all my stuff that I've just been out to. 
In Philippians, though, chapter 2. So this man, the close relative, was qualified, but not uniquely qualified. He did not follow through. In Philippians, though, 2, and we look at the first five verses, we see that Jesus is uniquely qualified as a worthy God-man. He says in verse 1 of Philippians 2, So there... Is there any, if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy of being of the same mind. He's speaking to the church of, of Philippi. They're a little bit struggling. Uh, Paul, by the way, is writing this while he is in jail, and the whole theme of it is joy. He's telling them to be encouraged, to comfort themselves, to be men and women of joy. He says, be of the same mind and have the same love, being in full accord of one mind. He's telling the church, quit fighting, quit, dis- quit disagreeing. Just like you would say in a marriage, you got to come to the same mind. Verse 3, he tells them how to do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. How much would that just solve many of the problems? Just as Romans 12 says, do, uh, uh, show honor to others above yourself. If we could just do that, how many things would just probably just melt away? Maybe not melt away, but help us to deal with things. Look at verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, which we need to do, but also to the interests of others. There's the love your neighbor as yourself. Do you care about others as much as you care about yourself? Your holiness, their holiness. Your happiness, their happiness. Then verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, notice the similarities, because he's talking here about Christ. Look at the similarities between Boaz and Christ. They both are of the same mind. They're loving, they're selfless, they're humble, they're ready to sacrifice for others. And without these qualities, let me tell you, without these qualities, there is no redemption. The other relative may have been qualified due to being part of the family and closer in family, but he failed in that he was more concerned with his own inheritance and the cost of being a redeemer. For him, Naomi, a widow... He could just leave her up to dry. Hey, too bad for you. Oh, I'm sorry about you and Ruth. Just keep working. He could care less what would happen to his family members. It could have been his aunt, for all we know. Uh, Whatever the relation was, he just did not care. Next, though, we see that not only is Jesus qualified as the God-man in which he had the same mind in his human flesh as us, or, as, or he's the example of what we should have. But we also see that Jesus is uniquely qualified due to his position as God, the divine. He had the position of being God. He had the power, the divinity, and he had the privilege. He was chosen by God. In verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, what he says, who though he was in the form of God, speaking of Jesus, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's God. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus is uniquely qualified as Boaz was. They both had the position, the power, and the privilege. 
Jesus, like Boaz, determined that being a redeemer was worth the cost. Only Jesus, as God, could reconcile us back to God. He was the only one who could stand and be perfect, and be perfect in righteousness. And Jesus, as man, is the only way that he could become our brother, our close relative, and pay the penalty that God required for our redemption. Clarence Haynes Jr., the one who gave us what it needed, he remarks that Jesus became like us. Jesus was willing to give his life to pay the price that God required. Jesus was able to do so. And Jesus paid the complete price for our redemption. And like Boaz, Jesus was richly blessed and rewarded for his willingness to sacrifice as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Just like they, they, the, the witnesses gave a blessing to Boaz for his redemption of Naomi and Ruth, God the Father pours a blessing on his son for his willingness to redeem us. What wonderful truths. And this is what we're seeing here as we look at this little book of Ruth, is we need to see it more than just a background story or history or just a quirky little love story. It's pointing to a greater reality of a father who loves us. You see, we love God because he loved us first. He loved us when we were unlovable. He loved us when we were disobedient, when we were rebellious, when it says that our minds were hostile towards God. Just as Boaz loved Ruth, he put his love on her, a foreign woman. And I think one of the things, again, as I said last week, I think what's happening is when he looked at Ruth, he saw his mother, Rahab, another foreign pagan woman who was a prostitute and ran a tavern, who left all to follow Yahweh. He, he saw his father, a, a Jewish man, who looked at Rahab and brought her and married her, gave her a home. Boaz is a man who sees Ruth and Naomi for who they really are, creatures of God who needed redemption. And just like Jesus, who looked upon the crowd, he had compassion on their hearts. You see, when you and I see people, we make judgments, do we not? We make, make sometimes initial judgments. We say, oh, look at them. That's a homeless person. Or look at that person. He must be crazy. Or look what she's wearing. Does she have no fashion sense? Or look at that child. They're misbehaving. Those parents must be awful. And we make these judgments, but yet we don't see people as people. We don't look at them. As, we look at them as, as people who are bothering us or who are frustrating us or, or they're too loud and, they're, and they're, they're bothering me. But that's not how Jesus saw us. The Father could have just wiped us from the face of the earth, but he did not. He said, I'm going to place my love on you. I'm going to place my love on you. I'm going to choose you. I'm going to redeem you. Not because we were crying out for him, but because he was crying out for us. He looked on us 
with love. This wonderful plan of redemption demonstrates the love of the Father for his children. I've got a, a Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 8. I think I have it here on the monitor. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm so sorry. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, before Genesis 1, 1. He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is our calling. Let's continue in love. He predestined us for adopting for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Boaz had to pay money. Jesus gave his blood, his life. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. I love that for, for lavish, that description. Lavished. Like a, like a grandparent lavishing on his children during Christmas or birthday parties. This is how God is lavish, not just giving us what we need, but he gives us so much more. See, that's what Jesus did. He counted the cost and determined it acceptable. In the same way, you and I have to receive it. Just as Ruth had to, had to come and say, yes, I will marry Boaz. Naomi says, I will sell to you. Now, they, they, they could have refused it, but yet they saw a good deal. Yes, we will sell to Boaz. This is what we're hoping for. Ruth says, yeah, I'll marry Boaz. He's a worthy man. You and I have to respond to God's free offer of salvation. How we do that is counting the cost and determining that the price is acceptable. Ruth and Naomi had to look and say, okay, well, I will lose the use of my land for some time. I need to put myself under the authority of Boaz for some time. And Ruth says, okay, I got to marry another man and have children with him. Okay. That may or may not be an unpleasant thing. I don't know. But in this case, they counted the cost and says it is worth it. For you and I, you have a, count, a cost to count. A cost to count. You have a cost to count as well. What is that cost? Jesus says you must take up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. If someone were to ask you, why should Jesus let you into heaven? Your answer cannot be, well, because I'm a good person. My grandma was a good person. Or I was born in the U.S. of A. Or, or, or any other type of thing. Oh, I do religious things. I was born a Catholic. Or I was born this. Or I was born that. And I've done all these sacraments. I've done all these things. I go to Orangeville Bible Church. That's a, that's, a, that's a leg up, right? I give to the church. I do all these things. Jesus could say, I don't know you, man. Sorry, I never knew you. But I did all these things in your name. Sorry, don't know you. Who Jesus knows are those that pick up their cross, deny themselves. They see that they're sinners. They see that they have a need for a savior. And instead of trying to work their way to heaven, trying to please God, they recognize that Jesus has done everything that God has required 
and we trust in that. And we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, I confess that sin. I recognize that how I've been living my life, by living for my own ambition, living for my own purposes, that is wrong. I have failed in following your commands. Please let accept what Jesus has done on my behalf. See, that's the faith that God honors. It's like taking your hand off this, right? So I'm, I'm steady, right? If I was unsteady, I'm standing on this. But all of a sudden, I see how decrepit this is. It's starting to break. It's starting to fall. And I said, but I got to have faith. Uh, what over here is stronger. So I come over here, and this is what many of us do. We kind of then stand this way. Got one half foot in, one foot out. But that's not true faith. Faith is letting go and putting our hands here where it's steady. This is, the, this is the world. This is our sin. This is ourselves. This is Jesus Christ. However, you in our mind think that it's us doing this. Well, really what we're doing is God is picking us up, taking us over, and putting us in. Because even that faith is a gift from God. To quote the great theologian, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. No. Don't pray that prayer. But we need to understand is that we need to repent of our sin and turn and trust that God has accepted the works of Christ for our behalf. That's what he's calling for you to do. See, you and I are not Boaz in this story. You and I are Elimelech. We are Chilean, Malon, dead in our trespasses, no hope. We're Ruth and Naomi, needing redemption, can't doing it on our own. I pray that you would see Jesus Christ is the only one who is uniquely qualified through his position, through his power, and his privilege in redeeming you and I from the curse of sin and death that you cannot escape. As we end, I want to point out that we are called to declare the goodness. So how do we apply this? Because if I were to ask you how many, and don't raise your hand, how many of you know and have done this? Probably the majority of you raise your hand. Some might say, I'm just not sure. And if that's the case, would you see Lynn and I afterwards? We would love to share with you how you can know. We have some booklets back there. If you say, well, I'm not yet ready to ask. We have some booklets about what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be a Christian? That can help you. That's what many of those booklets are um, out there are there several good ones. But you and I are to be like Ruth and Boaz, or no, Ruth and Naomi, in that when they hear the news, as we're going to go to next week, they rejoiced. They found salvation in one who was willing to pay the price. So what am I calling you to do? First is come to the Redeemer. If you have, then secondly, I'm calling you to rejoice, to worship. As we pointed out that we are called to declare the goodness of our great Lord and Savior. Going back to our scripture reading passage from earlier in Revelation 5, we read in this verse, and it's going to be here on the screen, but I want to read one passage before we get there. And this is John. He has a vision of what it's like in heaven. The Apostle John. 
And he says, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So you and I understand this is a picture of Christ with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that are sent out into the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand, the one that, it was, that could not be opened, and he took the hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. He now has the scroll, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So you get this picture, this, this celestial picture. And then join with me as we look in the monitor. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest or God, and they shall reign on earth. There is our inheritance. As we continue. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. You and I, in this case, are like Ruth and Naomi, which were, were, were declaring the goodness of the one who paid the price. He goes on to say, And I heard every creature in the heaven and the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in, saying to him, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, that's speaking of the Father, and then to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. In other words, a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And all the elders fell down and worshiped. Let us here at OVBC join with all creation, the saints of old, and all of the redeemed in proclaiming that Jesus is worthy. Amen. And may we be like Boaz, act worthy to the life that we have been called and to rejoice in our redemption. Every head bowed and every head closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to make their way up. Father, we just, you know, we just thank you so much. And I want you to look at the pause for a moment to consider this love story, this sealing of the deal. Very much has God sent Christ to seal the deal for us. Would you pray and ask God how he would want you to respond through the Holy Spirit? Maybe you need to come and know Christ. You need to know how to answer that question. Why should I let you in my heaven? Maybe it's a question of why you're not finding joy. Why are you struggling with selfish ambition? Why is there quarrels in your life? Why is the problem going on? Maybe it's today you just need to be, have a heart of gratefulness and thankfulness, remembering that you have only what you have because Christ has redeemed you. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Father, I want to pray here this morning for our families, for our men, for our women, for our children. Lord, let us be men and women of, of worthiness that are following the steps of our Savior. Give us hearts of humbleness and selflessness. Lord, make us a joyful, but also grateful for all that you've given us. Father, I pray for our marriages. I pray for our, 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 our parents. Lord, we just thank you so much for little Violet coming this week. What a wonderful joy. And we all look forward to meeting her. I pray that you continue to be with them as they recover. And I know we have several that are traveling. Randy is out of town. I pray that you bring them back safely. 
Father, I pray that you would be with this church that strengthen us. Father, we, we're only as strong as our weakest link. So let us encourage and lift and build one another up. Father, bring those that do not know you to our church so that we may share the gospel. And then may we bring those booklets and, and other types of things that we have that we may then share that there is a redeemer. There are many who do not know that they're lost and that they're in need of a redeemer, in need of a savior. Foolishly thinking that they're standing right before God, not even realizing that one day they will stand before a living, holy God. I pray that you compel us to share these truths with our friends and family, the ones that we love and care about. Father, we pray for our nation. We are also living in a time when everyone is doing what is right, what is right in their own eyes. They are calling what is good evil and calling what is evil good. Father, protect us. May we be Boazes. May we be Ruths during this time. If there are any here that are Naomi that feel empty or struggling or feel bitter, I pray that the, that the love of Christ would change their hearts. In all of this, for your glory, Lord, and for our good, that we may rejoice and that you may be bringing others to you through our testimony and witness. In Christ's name, we pray these things. God's people said, amen. amen. I want to thank you so much for being here. Would you stand and join with us as we just lift up? Glory to God forever. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.